Hello and welcome to episode 17 of the IoT for All podcast, another episode of our Ask IoT series. I'm your host, Ryan Chacon, the Editor-in-Chief of IoT for All. And for those of you who are new to the Ask IoT series, this is a series that we created to be dedicated to bringing on the brightest and most creative minds in IoT to chat and answer questions from the audience. With me today as my co-host is Kayla McClelland, who runs the operations here at IoT for All and is one of our leading writers. Hi, Kayla. Hello, everyone. <laughs> Our guest today is Mark Testoni, the CEO of SAP National Security Services, which is an independent subsidiary of SAP that was established to provide SAP commercial software capabilities, um, product support, consulting services, and such to customers, partners, and stakeholders in the U.S. national security and critical infrastructure communities. Now, as CEO, uh, Mark is responsible for the management, sales, consulting, and such and the go-to-market strategy for SAP's most secure and sensitive U.S. government markets, customers, and partners. Um, to give you a little background on Mark before he jumps in here, he's previously worked as the president of SAP Public Services and was a VP of Defense Operations at Oracle. In addition, he has spent 20 years in the Air Force as a deputy director. So without further ado, I'd love to welcome Mark to the show. Thanks for being here. And why don't you go ahead and take a few seconds to introduce yourself to our audience. Thanks, Ryan. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to be with you this afternoon. Uh, when you said that you bring some of the brightest minds on, I may be uh, breaking breaking that glass a little bit, but uh, I think we'll have a good conversation anyway. No, seriously, uh, it's a it's a real pleasure to be involved. Yet yeah, I I currently, as you mentioned, am CEO of SAP National Security Services, and you know it's a great great job supporting largely the national security community. But as we've seen over the past number of years with the, the advent of the internet and beyond that national security has become much broader than the traditional definition and we certainly can talk about during the course course of the next few hours. I, I, I had a, a long career in the United States Air Force and got to do a, a lot of it, you know, fun and, and good things and transitioned about 22 years ago into the private sector and kind of worked my way up to have this opportunity. And, you know, our primary focus is to, again, fo focus to support the national security community with commercial technology capabilities. And the DOD and the rest of the national security community have spent many years really building their own capabilities kind of towards military spec things. And, and that's been very successful. Mm -hmm. But in more recent times, because so much of the R&D now is in the private sector, commercial products and software capabilities are becoming much more important to the calculus of, of national security. So that's kind of our focus and that's what we try to do. Great. Yeah, my next question was going to be to kind of talk more about what um, SAP NS2 actually is because most okay. of us have heard of SAP, but the National Security Service Society is a bit new to a lot of people. And if you could just take a little bit or expand a little bit what on what you just said about what it is that you guys do to kind of help give some context, that'd be awesome. I'd love to. So, as you mentioned, many people are familiar with SAP. It's a global global software company that's largely focused, was focused for many years in the business application space, created in the early 1970s, and is, when it, when it comes to what we call traditionally enterprise resource planning, or ERP, is still and remains the dominant provider of things like financial management, supply chain management, shop floor, human capital. Uh, if you look at what SAP's done in recent years is much like many other companies and 
and government is the pivot is towards the data that's generated, not only these systems, but the data that we need to run our businesses today and the visibility and, and what's going on. What we do in, in, in SAP National Security Services is basically we've recreated SAP, the company, on a smaller scale uh, in the U.S., based on agreement with the U.S. government, because SAP is a foreign-owned company or foreign-flagged company, and companies that are foreign-flagged to do business in much of the national security space have to have be separated or what they call foreign ownership and influence mitigated. So actually, we set up a completely separate company that that operates outside, but we get the great advantage of taking SAP's great products and services to the table for these customers that they might not be able to have under under other circumstances. So what we do is we take the software products, we have consulting services to support them, we have set up a, a set of uh, enterprise secure cloud operations, and um, and we support all these products as well. And, and what what's interesting and nice about that is it's all inside the U.S. and many of our people are credentialed and our networks are separate. So we it offers the national security community and other customers, even in the commercial space, an opportunity to have something that, that perhaps is a little bit more secure for them because it's the risk aperture around global operations has shrunk a little bit. So hopefully that gives you a little bit more background on what we do. Yeah, that's great. And uh, something I want to pick up on is you mentioned, you know, providing software and services. Uh, something that stood out to me on the NS2 website was we are more than a software vendor or a services company. Uh, and then it went on to say that NS2 partners with your customers to understand their unique needs. And I really liked that because something we've seen being in the IoT industry is that just taking a piece approach of providing, you know, just the software or just a network or just some sensors doesn't work. And you actually need to work very closely with clients to, you know, as you say, understand their unique needs and then uh, work towards those. So something I'd love to hear from you would be from your experience, what have you seen uh, that it is necessary to create sex, uh, success when it comes to IoT or uh, you know, machine learning or these data collection deployments for your customers um, and coming from two different frames. So some of our listeners might be those who would be those adopting these technologies who might be, say, a customer of SAP. But there also are those who might be the ones trying to sell these kinds of solutions to clients. So I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts there, please. Sure, that's a great question. You know, ultimately, when, when we look at commercial platforms, uh, at a level, all businesses, and, and when you look at even national security customers like intelligence and, and defense, they all op, they all have many of the same business challenges that apply in the commercial sector. For many years, they relied on building these things by themselves, particularly as they faced the mission, whether it would be fusing data together for intelligence purposes or creating better visibility, say, in a battlefield situation for, for a defense customer. So you know, what we've tried to do is, is historically these communities have used commercial technologies over the last 20 years, say, in what we would traditionally call the back office business aspects. So they, they've implemented SAP for financial, and they've implemented Oracle for things, and Salesforce and many of these others. But most of those things are in the back, what we would traditionally call the back office finance, 
accounting, supply chain. What we've, we've tried to do, and, and it kind of plays to the IoT, is pivot the, towards the data solutions. SAP is very much big into talking about the intelligent enterprise. And what we've done is tried to pivot that message into the secure intelligent enterprise, intelligence enterprise. And, the, and, and we think what's important is for those platforms often meet 60, 70% of, of the needs of a customer, but how do we then configure and extend them to meet the needs of our customers. And to do that, you need to have a level of customer intimacy and you need to have engagement pass. And in recent times, what we've tried to do is we've acquired actually two or three com co uh, companies that are that have you know, skill sets inside specific customers and inside the intelligence community and defense that we want to get to, be it special operations or some of the other places. And then we've created a labs capability where we have an ability for our customers to come in and, and and basically innovate with us together. And so these kind of things set the platform for looking at what a problem might be and then how we might solve that problem. And then, and then from there, even you know, additional things can spin from, from that because often the initial problem we might, we might look at, for example, might be fusing many sort, uh, pieces of information together from sensors and other, say, defense and intelligence things, they may have new things coming on like, like drones and video and all that. So we can leapfrog and extend those solutions. So it's really important to have intimacy with the customer on whether you're commercial and, and really work collaboratively together to get to the end goals the customers want. Probably the most important thing that, that we do. And that's really what we're focused on in this space. I think something that might be helpful if you can share would be to make this a little bit more concrete, are there any mm -hmm. specific uh, customers you've worked with recently or things coming out of the uh, innovation lab you're doing that you're particularly excited about and that can help to kind of give form to talking about data fusion and you know working with the customer, you know, what, what that actually means or can, what it can, it can look like? I could certainly. So there's a defense customer, and I can't say specifically which one, but we have worked with this customer who has long struggled to try to create data visibility in, in a you know in combat operations for, for for the troops you know being able to fuse data from 30, 40, 50 or more sources both nationally and locally to create a platform using our HANA platform, which is a, a real time in memory database, to be able to pull data together very rapidly, deploy into a theater you know, at speed of you know, speed of thought, allow then the troops on the ground to be able to take local information, whether it be open source or observations, and apply that and help drive predictive activities, identify threats in the space, identify friendly friendlies in the space. So we've, we've had significant success with one customer around that. And again, it was a very collaborative process. And what, what's nice about this is historically defense, when they build these things, it takes a long period of time. We actually put the framework for this together in a few weeks using, you know, the bedrock of a commercial technology, HANA, behind it. So, you know, that's one example. Another would be that we've worked very closely to put up secure clouds with some of our, you know, more or less, you know, classified customers. So, we're, we're putting SAP content and cloud capabilities up and customers are coming in to adopt them, whether they're in the human capital space or, or others. We are working with several customers to put 
a uh, security solution together that 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 actually takes allows through a combination of technologies worked on so taking both in video stream uh, scanning information for people with badges and many other sensors that are picked up say around a campus of a company or a campus of an agency to be able to have a a 360 view of security around a physical location. So these are the kind of things that we're working. I hope that gives you a little bit better. I can't get too far, much farther down the, the chain, but it, all these are around the, the use of and the fusion of data that's coming from many things, IoT devices, sensors in, in the spectrum, potentially things like drones, and then scanning data on badges, all the kinds of digital data that's being created today, but is often hard to pull together in one place. And what, what SAP does really well off of platforms is take data and pull it together. We may not operate the, the IoT device itself, but we certainly can help manage the data coming off of it. And that's where we're really focused with these customers. Yeah, and it seems like another really critical piece when being in the defense se sector or even for mission-critical enterprise systems would be stability and reliability. So... You know, in the consumer space, if someone were to have their voice assistant not work, you know, that would just be annoying, but no one's going to die. Right. Uh, in defense sector, you know, especially in the theater of the battlefield, you can't, uh, you need to know that these systems are going to be reliable. So I'd love to hear about some of the unique challenges, perhaps, that you've seen when it comes to more mission critical or, you know, battlefield systems that are being used in real time and you know anything you've done or you've seen done to help with that stability and reliability and other potential factors if there are any that uh you think separates these kinds of systems maybe from the commercial sector that's a really good question you know i think when we look at defense or national security there's really there's two broad categories of of capabilities that iot potentially can bring to the table one are the you know Department of Defense, for example, is a huge business, just like you pick the large business around the country, you know, whether it's, you know, United Technologies or many of the other General Electric, many of these big businesses. So there are many capabilities in supply chain or medical that are very adaptable inside the Department of Defense. Okay, so those, you know, they're going to have potentially unique security and other aspects, but then there's a whole lot of other kind of mission-focused things, whether it be, and we've seen drones and sensors and many other things. But regardless of which side of those two kind of broad-spectrum things, there's really three things that stick out to me that are important inside defense. One is redundancy. It's kind of like the airline industry, as I think we all know. It's you know fairly amazingly safe, and we knock on wood every day. But there's a lot of redundancy built into both air traffic control, the platforms themselves, the same kind of things are going to be required for, for IOT devices, whether they're drones or, or, you know, automated robotics on a battlefield or, or even medical devices that, you know, implanted in people, you know, redundancy is going to, is always going to be really important. I think that even expands often in the commercial space. Security is hugely important. And, you know, obviously, and I think you've had previous guests in, in this, for IoT, this is a wild west right now. We still are trying to figure out how we create standards around security. 
defense is going to, to be able to apply these devices is going to have to lead the way in its own. And then the third component is environmental adaptability. You have to have things that are hardened or capable enough to work within the environment. So those three things st stick out to me. But a lot, an awful lot of what will happen inside the national security community are, you know, there are technologies in IoT as they evolve will be readily adaptable just off of the same things that are used in business, as well as those mission ones. Hopefully I got at your, your question there. Yeah, thank you. One of the things I'm curious about, we kind of touched a little bit on this um, when we were talking about like what does success look like, but how is how is the ROI kind of measured in this space? Like, we're very familiar with how people are measuring the success of IoT solutions um, on the enterprise and consumer side, uh, but not so much on, on the side that you work on. So I'd be curious to kind of learn a little bit more about what people are looking for in these solutions outside of just, you know, stability, it being reliable and so forth. But at the end of the day, what kind of, what, how are they measuring the ROI um, after something has been built? You know, it's uh, often ROI comes down to a pure dollars and cents thing in a lot of cases. Although if, as we look at even in the commercial sector these days, you know, there's an extension to ROI around customer satisfaction that's becoming much more and, and adaptability to the use. But in, in, in defense, historically, and even in the you know, other parts of the national security community, ultimately, you know, the outcome of the capability drives. So it, it, you know, although the cost is important, it's maybe not the driving factor of effectiveness of the, the outcome, whether it's you know, the ability of, to be able to capture video, for example, in, in places that we historically can't get people into off of, you know, some sort of drone or other technology, or whether it's sensors, it, it's more about can I get the data that I need? I think the challenge becomes, and I think this is a challenge on both sides, is, you know, ultimately, we're finding, you know, really the defense and others in the commercial sector are testing these things quite grandly and in many ways. But can we then get full value out of the data that comes out of these things? One of the biggest challenges inside the department today on the value chain is there's an awful lot of data being collected, but they aren't getting to enough of it. And that's where you know the actual ability to rapidly take the data, look at it, cleanse it to see if it's of value, and then use it for information coming from many, many different places is probably the biggest challenge. It's also a huge challenge in the commercial sector as, as, as we face customers. So I think, you know, we look at additional ROI on things like you look at a, a drone, for example. Well, if I can send an unmanned capability into a combat area, if I'm in defense, there's a lot of value to that, right? Including the exposure to the danger for humans. So there's value there, but ultimately, the value, the real value over time is going to be our ability to exploit the information that comes off those platforms. And we're still working on that. I mean, when I say we in the collective community of, of national security, we're working to improve that. Gotcha. As is business, by the way. Yeah, to expand on what Ryan was saying, something we've seen when it comes to the enterprise, like commercial sector for IoT is that when it comes to evaluating you know, the return on investment for a given product or service, uh, it can be tough. And so in some cases, it's more straightforward. Like you might be able to say, okay, by measuring uh, you know, some 
some data stream, whether it's like the fill level of uh, waste bins or whatever it may be, we can automatically alert the people who would have to service these to when they need to be serviced and therefore right. save money because now we can free up you know, 25% of a person's time. And therefore, right. it's a pretty clear translation of the return piece of the investment. So then you're just evaluating, does that make up for the investment to instrument all these sensors and collect this data in the first place? But when it comes to things like, you know, protecting soldiers' lives because they don't need to go into battle or um, other things that might be less dollars and cents, uh, I think what it ultimately comes down to is what does the purchasing process look like? And part of this is I'm, I'm just genuinely curious since I've worked in more so the commercial enterprise space, uh, less so defense. So I know, or my guess would be it's a lot around RFPs from the government, but I'm, I'm pretty naive here. So I would love to hear like what that looks like as far as the decision-making for um, areas in the public sector for purchasing these kinds of solutions or services. Yeah, another really good question. And, you know, I'm going to try to keep this one really brief, but there, there, what's interesting about the regulations, there's an awful lot of the what you call RFP business, and a lot of that is sits behind what are either government spec or mill spec things. But the federal acquisition regulations have a, a annex for commercial acquisition of commercial solutions, and policy says that if something can be a commercially purchased and adapted, the government or the military sh should do that. Um, and th there, th there's a big there's a big challenge inside of the government right now. They're trying to move more towards commercial technologies. You, you may be familiar with the there's a, there's a, a number of procurements around the cloud inside the Department of Defense. There's a program called Jedi that's been some kind of what controversial. I won't get into that, but. The government, many of the leaders understand that they need to evolve from pure RFPing to how do I quickly take and collaborate with industry and then acquire things. And we're seeing more of that. There's a specific program inside the Department of Defense called MAVEN where they're actually testing, for example, um, you know, how do I take video off the tactical edge and quickly you know, turn it into metadata that can then be used and, uh, you know, there's been some success that's been public. You know, there's been some you know, press on that. But there are many other initiatives like that trying to then run those kinds of things in against the traditional procurement methodologies and defense in the government is a challenge. But that's what our job is. I mean, ultimately, what we try to do is, is get our customers to recognize that they can do these things more rapidly, like an example or two. And they're starting to get it. The... Um, um, and we're watching kind of a renaissance as far as the government, the, the military, DOD, and, and the federal government moving to the cloud. In 2009, the, the CIO of the federal government proclaimed cloud first. Well, sometimes it takes a little longer in defense, but over the last year, we're really seeing them move. So I, I think there's a, you know, in, inside government, it always takes longer to change the culture than, say, in the private sector. As you said, things very much being driven by direct ROI. Um, but the government always starts with a mission need. I mean, it often starts. That's how the process starts. They've recognized that they need to identify those needs more rapidly and then try to go to the commercial capabilities where they can deploy them faster than always going to a 
traditional provider and having them build something for them. So this is there's a cultural shift going on right now that's that's uh, kind of fascinating to watch. Yeah, but I think we'll be successful over time. Yeah, fascinating was actually the word I was going to use to follow up to that because when it comes to commercializing or using commercial technologies, um, it does seem like that's a need. And so I, I guess just because of the advancement of newer technologies, where if the public sector isn't adopting them or isn't able to adopt them fast enough, then by the time they are adopted, then it could be, you know, 10 years out of date. Way so, too late. Right. So that's really interesting. And uh, I think important to highlight for our audience, especially if there's those of you out there who are working in the space, uh, who are providing these kinds of solutions or services that it seems like perhaps uh, if the culture can change, that it could become an increasingly larger opportunity for uh, commercial technologies in the defense sector. I would just say, if if I could add, that I often uh, tell audiences that our adversaries, the adversaries to the U.S., are adapting commercial technologies very rapidly. And, you know, many of them are commercial technologies that originated or even were developed in this country. And we need to be as agile to adapt them here to counter some of those threats. So I, I'm encouraged because I'm seeing progress in this area. And, it, and, and you're not going to change the entire institution overnight, nor, nor and there will always be you know, for example, if we need to build a weapon system like uh, an F-35 or a ground, I mean, that's always going to be in the military spec domain. But big data kind of solutions you know, are ones that I, you know, often can start very much so with commercial technologies. And I, I sense there are many in leadership that are trying to drive the, 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 the government in that direction. Are there any other areas where you view there to be big opportunity in addition to that, you know, data collection and fusion when it comes to if there were an organization looking at, you know, not necessarily building the weapons, but in building tools that could help uh, in the defense sector? I think, I think there's, you know, there's a couple, you know, there, there are a few other areas that could be really important. I mean, there are an awful lot of, bit, we talked a little bit earlier about, I, I mentioned there's kind of two classes of IOT devices, those that kind of are traditional business could be adapted in defense or the government and those that are more on the mission side. I think on the, on the business, you know, the thing, the, the DOD and most of the government is just big business. They, they have customer facing operations. They manage complex supply chains as we develop new technologies in those areas, as SAP calls it, the intelligent enterprise, or and other companies have their versions, the DOD needs to be adapt, try to adapt these in the government much more rapidly. Cloud capabilities, that the train is is going on. That we're working with many customers inside the federal government to move their SAP capabilities into the cloud and then exploit the new cloud. So I think those are really important. Believe it or not, for a lot of government agencies, I think cyber is another area that could be potentially important, uh, particularly with the explosion of the IoT devices, you know, everything from cell phones to, you know, now we uh, cut the customer connectivity, even with government. There are, you know, th- threat, but the threat platform obviously gets a lot bigger when you have more devices connected, but, and there are emerging technologies around endpoint cyber uh, companies like Counterattack that we work with, CrowdStrike, many others have these, and these kinds of things I think could be very important for 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 the government agencies as well. That's great. 
yeah, there's something you mentioned in there that I think transitions us really well into the Ask IT portion of, of the episode. Um, because the first question talks about kind of implications um, and the relationship of IoT to national security and stuff we need to be thinking about. So I'll, I'll just ask the question the, the way it was written, which is what are the biggest implications IoT has on national security? And I'd love to kind of get your thoughts on that. Well, you know, you, you started, I mean, there's, again, I, I mentioned the two kind of sec sides. First of all, on, on, on the business side, being a big business and the government is, and the DOD particularly, is recognizing how important supply chain integrity and visibility is. So I think, and, and then the operations of within those things, and there's a lot of work going on in commercial sector on IoT and the, the fusion of data to give greater visibility. I, that's an area that's very ripe for wringing out a lot of slack in the supply chain and cost, which could push more dollars into the, you know, the pointed edge. That to me is, is something that, that defense has to look at really, really hard. But I, but I, you know, when you look at the implications on kind of the, the combat side, we have to take, I think the biggest challenge is, is there's twofold. One is, as we see a world that now has become, you know, just completely data driven, whether you're facing customers or you're facing adversaries, the data is really important. So as we deploy and, and the government has deployed many sensors out there and there are sensors that exist just because people use phones and things in those areas of the world where we're engaged. So there's a lot of data, how quickly we can collect that data and turn it into usable information for you know, our defense and our allies' defense, to me, is the most critical thing. And, and that's where I get back to the importance of redundancy and, and the ability to secure these information supply chains to be able to, to create success in this. We're just at the very beginning of this in many ways. We've ultimately, defense and national security has used sensors for many, many years and different platforms trying to take advantage of all the information that comes out of them have been the challenge. And I think that's going to be, if we can help in that regard, I think it's going to be huge. And I say we, the collective we of industry can help. It's really right. important. Now on the, on kind of, we haven't really talked too much about this, but from a risk standpoint, what kind of, um, what risks or, or things that kind of scare you out there when it comes to IOT um, and it's, you know, imp, uh, being implemented, you know, in areas of national security? What kind of what kind of things have kind of stood out to you, or things you kind of make sure you're always thinking about? Well, uh, you gentlemen probably have grown up in the era of the internet. I grew up in the, in an era when my parents had the first, you know, were the, among the first generation that got televisions, right? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Analog TVs. So you know, we come from a little different perspective. But you know, I think what uh, concerns as it relates to these devices is no matter what technology we've deployed since the internet's come along, and I, I think this goes back thousands of years, is we get the capability out there and then security becomes kind of an afterthought. Then we go, oh, we got to secure this, or we need right. to make sure that the data stream is secure, or we got to make, and, and, and we can say that about, you know, the evolution of the smartphone and apps and now the IoT devices, it's the same problem. So how do we secure these things? How do we make sure they're not being manipulated? You know, the data streams aren't being manipulated at the endpoint. Uh, 
So to me, that's, and that's not just a defense. You start, we look, when we go to the 5G world and we start really talking about, you know, automotive, you know, activity with these things. And how about implants in the medical community? I think that's a fascinating thing. They're already existing. How do we make sure that somebody cannot, you know, get in and, and deal and, and, and actually affect these things in adverse ways, whether it's a combat capability, whether it's supply chain visibility in a company or inside government, or whether it's a, you know, it's an implant providing medication to somebody, how do we create a, a secure app risk aperture that balances cost with, with the, the importance of what we're doing? I think that's going to be key. And some of the, you know, there's things out today like blockchain and maybe son of blockchain that come along that could be part of the answer, but I don't, we're still grappling with how we're going to, we're going to secure those things. On the topic of embedded devices, like in a medical context, I don't know if you've seen these, Ryan, yeah, but there've been two recent uh, messages we've gotten, which are extremely long and were kind of crazy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like saying the person reached out saying like, Hey, I've had a, medical tracker embedded in me and no one believes me and I'm not crazy. And can you help? Uh, and I'm pretty sure it was actually crazy. Uh, a lot of things didn't add up, but it, it, having seen two of these now, I kind of wonder if there's some sort of like, if it's a, it's a PR, not PR, but like if it's a, I feel like I've seen this in like movies before or like a yeah. TV show. Somewhere. Are we talking about like the government's embedding things in people? Yeah. Or they, they, they think, that, yeah. yeah. Or they think that that has happened. I don't, to them I don't somewhere. know if they, yeah, they, they believe <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, you know, it's just. I mean, look, people will think what they want to think, and uh, you know, they could be on. It could have been. They might have picked up an idea on a, a, a in a grocery store tabloid online, or, or walking through the grocery store. But there's always been people that have been conspiracy theorists. I, I, I don't believe that. That you know, I'd be the last person to believe that that was actually happening. Oh yeah. But what's funny about that? You right. mentioned you, what you say that though. What's funny about that is it's it's not far from reality in other parts of the world. I mean, uh, in China, for example, they're uh, without the whole lot of you know approval from their citizenry. They're doing an awful lot with facial recognition on their countrymen, right? Right. So we we kind of laugh about the you know the and and believe it or not, we get some calls like that into our hotline as well. Just so you're not the only ones. Uh, but, you know, you, you, it's not so much a reach when you start thinking about, like I said, what some countries are doing with facial recognition in their population. And I don't believe that everybody's signing up for it, you know, which, you know, really gets to an important thing related to privacy with all these devices as well. Beyond securing them, we have, we're still grappling, I think, in this country with privacy and what data is really in the expanded or, you know, personal information and how, under what circumstances could it, should it be disclosed? I think, you know, that's another set of issues that we're going to have to grapple with in this country pretty well. Yeah. It's, I now Kellen brings it up. I remember reading this and then being really weird, but yeah, I actually just scrolled back to it. It's, it's kind it really is crazy because it, what it's saying is that it it has like a fundamental misunderstanding of how the technology works, which is why it strikes me as I'm wondering if it's trying to spread disinformation or maybe appeal to people who don't understand how these things work. Like I think facial recognition in China, that's real. Uh, and and yep. reason for concern. Uh, but, you know, having chips embedded under your skin to track you. Yeah. Well, how is it tracking you? Uh, like you, 
I, I know from experience that having a GPS chip in these, you're going to need a battery. So like <laughs> the things right. that are not going to work. Like, uh, They're going to have to call you back in eventually. So right. I, I mean, I think uh, until we get some sort of like, you know, maybe 30 or 40 years from now, or maybe less, we have an ability to charge things. I, I think it's a little bit, I mean, some people want to always come up with these kinds of crazy ideas as to write. And, you know, the government's always been accused of doing lots of things that it, it really doesn't, doesn't have the capacity to do. But I think that's a public awareness thing just in general. I mean, we, you know, we've, we, people need to be aware of issues and aware of reality versus what's not real. But these things are fun to talk about. As you said, the facial recognition thing is real. And, you know, and then under what circumstances do we do use facial recognition in this country someday? Those are going to be important things for us to discuss because they could be really important to security and access and things as we go forward. Yeah. And it's important to have a, a, converse, a conversation that's a productive one. And so I feel like a big barrier to that is uh, can be misunderstanding. So maybe, Ryan, maybe we should have a, a podcast on chipping. <laughs> Just get all the conspiracy theories on here? Like, no, no. Well, no, yeah. hopefully to reduce conspiracy by explaining how it actually works. Yeah. I mean, it's out. a little bit like... Go ahead. It is like one of these futuristic fantasy movies almost when right. you read these things. I mean, it's like... But, you know, fortunately, I don't think the average mainstream person believes all those things. But there are other issues that I think, uh, whether they're economic-related... Or, um, you know, often one of the things uh, that's interesting, uh, you know, that sometimes is misconceptions around national security and defense. And we've seen tech companies and parts of the populations be very concerned about, you know, the ethical use of AI, which these are really important things to discuss. But I think there's, you know, we need to make sure as, as citizens of the country, we're knowledgeable. As I mentioned earlier, you know, our adversaries are using AI against us both, you know, as they collect information, analyze it, and 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 in very you know, machine learning and other things, we have to be prepared to use those things to defend the national good here. And I, I think that's an area where I think young people particularly need to really make sure they understand the totality of the issues before we decide that, you know, how we proceed as a company to support some of the things that are done in government, particularly in the national security community. Absolutely. I mean, I don't know about you, Kellen, but if we had a bunch of people on here that were conspiracy theorists, and then afterwards we followed up with some conversation on like debunking everything that they're saying, I think it would be rather entertaining. <laughs> no, actually, it would be entertaining. You'd probably be your, your most listened to. <laughs> yeah, just get on podcast these, ever. Yeah, these crazy people yeah, on here telling you the about headlines how... you put it out there. <laughs> it's like the Martians abducted me and brought me away for that, six that's years. That's the first and thing I thought about. Was, oh, well, yeah. that, that's real, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's right. I, I forgot about. I was abducted. Yeah, yeah. Independence Day when he says he's been the whole time. He's, uh, you know, says he's abducted by these aliens and had these out of world experience <laughs> experiments on him and stuff. Yeah, I mean, that made for an entertaining movie. So I think it could be good for a podcast. It must. It sounded like it was probably just a bad dinner the night before. Maybe that caused yeah. that dream. Yeah, we're going to probably that. change the whole. Maybe idea some of, liquor. Yeah, we're going to yeah. change the whole idea of bringing on the brightest and most creative minds in IoT. <laughs> We're going to rebrand it. Yeah, <laughs> creative, right. maybe not brightest. Yeah. Creative. creative, yeah, for sure. That's pretty good. So let me know when you're going to run that one because I'll be all ears for that one. Yeah, we'll get you on as the follow-up so you can tell us like how ridiculous. Okay, we can debunk everything. Exactly. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah meanwhile, I'll try to go check, get the chip removed from my own forehead. Yeah, right. <laughs> People just randomly searching their bodies trying to Can't figure out where the chip was installed when they were born, you know. 
50 years ago, whenever it was airborne. Um, you know, I think if I can make a last sure. point, that's a little more serious on the subject. I mean, the, the, the I, you know, the medic, the implants of medical devices, which have been going on when you, you know, probably 40 or 30, 40 years with sure. pacemakers and things like that. I mean, there's a huge potential, and you know, this is right in the sweet spot of IOT. And then, you know, managing everything from the dispense, potentially dispensing medications to, to, you know, monitoring vitals and look at little things like, you know, we, we laugh about the chip, you know, the chip and the head thing, but we actually all have a chip. It's called our smartphone. Hmm. Right. I mean, literally it's connected to us 24 by seven. So why do they need to implant a chip? We got a smartphone in our hand that we basically never get rid of. And we probably have a half a dozen apps at any time tracking our location and other things. And I'm wearing an Apple watch that, you know, I would guess in the next few years, these devices will be able to do a lot for us medically. I, I look to, I really see that in the future of some of these companies from our content is mm -hmm. how do we, I mean, these are the IOT things that we don't really think about often, but really could be ultimately very important to us, not only in government, but as population. You think about the medical implications of some of these things to be really, really important. Yeah, I think that the kind of the context in which they're introduced is important too. So if you, if you put these in, you know, those kinds of services or features into something that we get a consumer benefit out of, it's more likely to be adopted and possibly used yep. um, than trying to get a, them to, you know, someone to wear something else or add some other kind of um, item they have to deal with on a daily basis. But if we can just naturally weave it into what we encounter and what we, you know, handle or on a daily basis, I think that could be, it could be very valuable. And I, we're already seeing that with a lot of the the stuff, like you said, that that smartphones and I, and Apple watches and um, any of these wearables are collecting. That's a really, really good point because the biggest problem as, a, as someone who's been in the technology industry for over 20 years and on the other side, but the biggest problem is, the, is managing change for people. Sure. But when, and you're right, you know, we've all kind of these platforms, in the case of the smartphone, the penetration is very high. And even in smart devices on the wrist, like Apple's Watch or the various trackers from various, I mean, We've all kind of accustomed to them, and, and it's interesting to watch new technology being route rolled out on these things on the existing platform. And you're right. I mean, we can we can really, really we've we've broken through the change management. Who knows what the next thing will be beyond the watch? But my suspicion is in five years there'll be something else, and and phones will be doing things that we can't even believe we don't really believe today. We don't even conceive. Yeah, we're, we're kind of seeing that on the just data collection, let's say, through the Internet. I mean, there's generations that are older than Caleb and I who, you know, are very protective of their information being spread on the Internet. But then you have our generation where we're, we're much more lax when it comes to that kind of thing because we're connecting our, our information to something that provides us a benefit. So what they do with the information we're not as concerned with because we didn't come from, you know, because it's, it's kind of it's common for us. So, again, it's kind of the context in which the introduced is, is important, just like we're talking about with, um, the, the collection of, you know, maybe our, our vitals, our location, and so forth. So really interesting. That's a, fa yeah. that's a fascinating point. And I think generationally, that's really critical um, that it is different. You, you guys look at it totally different than we, than we, we did. And I think that's part behind part of the kind of, you know, people aren't reacting to some of the, the cyber things or the breaches of information quite the way that I thought they would. I mean, mm -hmm. some of it's because it's just basically it's become so routine and, right. and 
And in the case of, say, the exploitation of the extended data, like we saw with Cambridge Analytic and all that, you know, most folks your age say, hey, well, I want the platform. That's the most important right. thing to me. And if they want to use the data, it's fine. And, you know, I've even started looking at it more myself that way, uh, even though I'm probably a few generations before you guys. Uh, yeah. You know, it's, you know, how, what's really important to protect these days and maybe some of this is, isn't as important as I once thought. Yeah, or we just don't have the good enough perception to understand what's valuable and what's not <laughs> for ourselves. There's some of it is it's some on both sides. I mean, sure. I really do, you know, but we won't know for many, many years. Exactly. And uh, I mean, you know, people that work in, say, national security community, there's there's certain data that would be better not out in the public domain mm -hmm. to the extent. And I think there's implications for that for people as they try to get into the communities that they need to think about. But there's a balance there, too. Yeah. Um, so I want to, before we wrap up here, I do have like at least one question I wanted to ask. It's kind of definitely much broader, but what do you think the future of IOT looks like in the public and the government defense sector? I think it's extremely important. Uh, uh, and really, you know, when you look at the mission of government, whether it's in, in, in national security broadly, whether it's in the far reaches of say combat operations to intelligence, I think these devices and, you know, the ability to have devices that take humans out of harm's way that can collect data and rapidly turn it into information that's executable are really going to be important on the operations inside government. I discussed, you know, everything from supply chain to medical to financial, but even national security, as I started off this discussion with used to be kind of thought about as defense, intelligence, those things, but our national security includes things in my estimation, like, our financial services industry, the utilities industry, and many of these critical infrastructure components. And, and these, you know, in the protection and both, you know, and, you know, all, all, it's always about, you know, how can we serve customers better, whether that customer's a government agency looking outward or, 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 uh, or a commercial consumer. The, the, the government's going to have to adapt these, adopt these devices in some cases more rapidly even in the private sector and other cases on the business side at, at an appropriate pace to be able to keep up and to be able to compete and to be able to be a very, you know, good government providing good services, whether it's social security administration or the department of defense. So I, I view this as a very important thing. The most critical thing to me, get back to security first and foremost, and we're going to have to have, develop standards around this by industry, by, you know, device type to be successful. It's fairly lax, as we all know right now, it remains. I mean, default passwords, you name it. I mean, look back in 2016 at the DDoS attack on the internet. It was largely facilitated by IoT devices that had standard passwords. We've got to look at these things. We need to take those warnings and move forward. But I think it's going to be really important and in 20 years these devices will be doing things not only commercially, but in government that we can't even think about right now. Yeah, I think I agree with that. Um, I really appreciate you, you know, joining us today. I thought it was really great. I, I didn't know I'd get the new idea for a podcast talking about getting <laughs> conspiracy theories. No, well, now that we've got so. the conspiracy theory thing going. Um, hey, if I could leave you with one other Absolutely. thought, it would be okay. Yeah, for sure. So it's a little bit off the subject, but it's something that's important. There's two, two thoughts. One is, is that we're constantly on the lookout for people that are talented that want to come into the, uh, you know, into our company mm -hmm. who 
want to work in a business, but support the business of national security, that broad business. So, you know, we're looking for everything from engineering talent to people that you know, have good customer skills across the board. Uh, if you go to our website, uh, www.sap.sapns2.com, mm-hmm. we've got a careers area in there and people certainly can, can send the resumes over. They can look at job openings that we have, but we, we really, really are pushing to get folks of your generation in the company. They're good jobs and they're, and, and, and there's a higher calling when you support, you know, some of the things that we've talked about today. The second piece is we have a nonprofit that we, we started that takes military veterans, the ones that are harder to employ, not, not so many of the officers, more of the enlisted folks that might not have college degrees. It's, It's called NS2 serves. NS2 is kind of the abbreviation of SAP national security services. And, and you can find out more information about it at ns2serves.org. But what we do is we take folks great, you know, that have maybe eight or 10 years of military background, maybe didn't get degrees, and uh, we bring them in and we turn them into uh, IT business consultants around our SAP capabilities, and we get them into careers. And uh, we're looking for people that might be interested in employing some of these folks or other people that might want to get involved with us on that. So if you go to www.ns2serves.org. They can find more information out about that. We're really proud of that. It's something that uh, I think is important on the national discussion of how we we not only retool veterans, but many others that have been displaced because of things that have gone on with great technology. How do we, you know, retrain and repurpose people that have good skills? Yeah, I think that's, that's, so, that's incredibly important. I appreciate you. Get- yeah, no, I, I'm glad you mentioned that because that's um, a really cool program you guys have going on we're, we definitely will include it in um in the description of the show with the links and all that kind of stuff so people can find out more information so i'm glad you mentioned it my my grandfather was a was a general in the in the army so military is a big part of uh, my family and i know you served in, in the air force so obviously you know thank you for your service and everything you've done so this conversation to me has been awesome to hear more about because i don't get exposure to the defense and private sector when it comes to the iot technology and um so I've, I've been very, very pleased with today's conversation. So thanks again. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with, with you gentlemen. And please have me back when you have the, uh, the uh, conspiracy theory episode to be the part of the debunking activity. No, seriously, it's been a lot of fun. And, um, and I appreciate what you guys do to, to help educate the public on really important things. So thank no, you. You're, you're very welcome. And we appreciate, you know, those kind words and, and the support you've shown. So um, we're glad we could have you on and hopefully to have you back, even in any context. It doesn't have to be about conspiracy theories. Nope. It can be about maybe something else you guys have that's exciting that's going on. Just let us know and we'll we'll schedule a time to have you on another episode. Yeah. Would be great. Would love, would love it. Thanks again, gentlemen. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. All right, everyone. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Ask IoT series on the IoT for All podcast with Mark Testoni, the CEO of SAP NS2. Um, please check out his nonprofit that he mentioned at the ep- end of the show, NS2 Serves. I think it's a pretty cool cause. If you did enjoy this episode, please leave a rating and review um, on whichever platform you're listening to us on. It not only helps others find it, but it lets us know that you're a fan, which is really cool for us. Um, And remember that if you have any questions about anything related to IoT, the Internet of Things, anything connected to that, or for one of our guests specifically, please use the hashtag AskIoT or tweet us directly at IoTForAll, and we'll be sure to review the question and hopefully have one of your questions featured on one of our next episodes. Thanks again for listening.